Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Mandy Smith, originally from Australia. She's lead pastor of University Christian Church, a campus and neighborhood congregation with its own fair trade cafe in Cincinnati, Ohio. She's also the author of several books, most recently The Vulnerable Pastor, and she's a friend. I give you Mandy Smith. Mandy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And today, and actually today is Easter Monday for Eastern Orthodox Christians. Mm. Is it Annunciation Day? Uh, Somebody told me that today. I don't know if it's, I thought Annunciation was... I, I was surprised to yeah, hear that because I don't think it's so. in, that would seem to be in Advent, Advent yeah. but a nun, a nun today told me today is... That, something to do with well, I mean, I don't so. want to dispute her. Maybe there's a different enunciation. Yeah, I need to look a that lot up. Of things are, a lot of things, things have been announced. But you know what's great? A tradition <laughs> I just learned about. The, the Orthodox that? on Monday, Easter Monday, which is there, tell jokes. Like, that's what you really? do because of the unexpected ending and irony and drama. And so, like, the way that's the day after good. Easter you start telling jokes. So, like, I want to hear an Eastern Orthodox joke. Yeah, I, that's the interesting thing. I don't, I have lots of Catholic jokes, but no Eastern Orthodox. I have a feeling it would end with a question. Probably, yeah, exactly. There's probably, you know. <laughs> so, we've got, it's, in, and, it's interesting. We have like these texts that are, you and I were just talking about this. It's interesting because in Easter Tide, the Old Testament reading for the next few weeks is not there. Or Acts takes the place of the Old Testament reading. Mm. By the way, I was somebody who it took me till like last year to figure out that there were only twenty eight chapters in the Book of Acts, and so when people talk about Acts twenty nine, <laughs> that they're the future of the. Oh, I never, ne- I never made that connection. I never did either. I thought they were just making up new chapters at the bottom. I never made that. Cha- and the one time I remember, I was with a pastor, and he said, "Those guys over there, they're eight two nine guys." I was like, why are you saying that? Are you that busy that you got to, sh- you're not even saving a syllable. A doesn't take more time than act. So when lunch came, I said, hey guys, LSG. And they said, what's that? Let's say grace. I'm learning how to just <laughs> save my time. So actually here, you know, it's interesting because we have Peter addressing the people um, here who are is presumably mostly, yeah, I mean, he says, you Israelites, why do you wonder at all this? He's sort of, you know, this is the so what now, what I guess of his proclamation and he, I love his line. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety mm. we had made him walk? Mm. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant, Jesus. He rejected. And then he offers them this powerful word of forgiveness that, that uh, you know, even though, I, you know, sometimes people say about certain issues where you're on the wrong side of history. Well, it seems like the whole human race on Good Friday is on the wrong side of history. And yet Easter Sunday is, mm-hmm. hey, everybody's got a chance for a do-over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very interesting mm-hmm. sermon. Mm-hmm. Grace of telling them that they acted in ing- ignorance. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like usually... Expecting the best from them. It's interesting. Like, we usually do that with ourselves. Like, when we screw up, well, we were ignorant or we didn't... Mean when somebody else acts badly, we say, well, they knew better. Well, that's funny because I do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, I mean, any time that you go through a peacemaking process, you know, the Anabaptists are great at this, 
and there's there's documents about how to go about this and and many times when I've read those things it often says something about expecting the best in one another or expecting uh hoping for the best in the motives of the other and reminded me of that here that Peter's giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, right? That that I, I think like it's it's tough to hold these two things in tension, right? Like to hold a realistic anthropology that we're sinners and broken. And it also hold to a, a profound sense of God's surprising work in the world. So mm. that both these things are, it's not an either or. Like, I feel like mm. it tends to be like you, you have people that are into God's working in the world and yet sometimes are sentimental about the nature of the human plight. And then you have people that are realistic about the human plight, but then tend to not be very open to the possibilities of God in light of that. And so it seems like Peter's mm. kind of, he's a both and on either or here. Yeah, I feel like it's somehow connected. His his willingness to trust that they acted in ignorance seems also connected to his uh, summary of what they think of his behavior, which is assuming it's by his own power or piety. Like somehow those two things seem connected to me. I can't quite explain why yet. Yeah, that's interesting. As if, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like Peter's saying, this is as much a surprise to me. You know, yeah. it was as, as shocking as it was for for me as it is to you. Yeah, like don't assume, don't assume so much of us, and don't assume so much of yourself, or something. You know, uh, as if by our own power or piety is not the reason how we're able to do this, and your own thinking you know stuff is the reason why you made bad choices. So yeah, it's interesting. I loved the um. The image just before in the passage just before this, um, leading up to his address of the people of the man being healed, which of course is what he's refer- referencing here. And, um, I just couldn't help thinking of the song that we sing about walking and leaping and praising God. Did you sing that one? I've never sung that. Silver and gold have I none, but something about what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. And it was just a fun song to sing when you're a kid. And um, we actually were taught it by a missionary to Papua New Guinea, and we sang it in Pigeon English. I don't know if that's even PC to sing a song in Pigeon English, but I still remember it. And um, this image of this exuberant response, and even this in the story, I don't remember many healings where – the apostle is the one who actually initiates it. So he doesn't ask for it. He um, is sitting there and Peter says, look at me. And the man looks at him expecting that he might, that Peter might give him something. And instead Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. And so it's, it's a total gift. And then this man who's been lame from birth. Um, so we can assume his legs are just totally withered you know his muscles have really not been used i want to see what happens to legs and it says his feet and ankles are made strong i want to see what happens to legs that suddenly go from never being used in their entire existence to walking and leaping see this is why cgi we can make better films oh really i know i wish they'd just had just a little camera they could take a few shots and I want to, like, I want to touch, I want to f- see what kind of muscles suddenly were available to him. <laughs> you know, I don't know how that happens. That feels like a, a miracle to me. Um, but you know, it says this, his, his name, Jesus name, faith in his name has made this man strong and given him perfect health. 
And, uh, yeah, just such a crazy thing to imagine. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because there's this sense in which you, uh, there's this move from the healing to invitation to the faith in one who it inevitably involves like putting yourself in the need for mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the thing about like why I think living forgiven is so hard because to live, you know, a story of self exaltation or self abasement, right? Like self condemnation, either one you can do all by yourself, but mm-hmm. to live forgiven, you've got to open up your story to be to you've got to give up control of your story hmm. uh, i like that yeah it's which is where there's i mean the possibility i think for a kind of beauty and mm. vulnerability mm. so the ignorance might not be that you knew nothing and now you know something it may be that you thought you knew something and the story you knew was wrong and it's time to know a different story yeah which I guess is what he's doing, right? He's saying, this is, you already know about this Jesus. You know what you did to him. You knew, you thought you knew who he was and what you were doing. You thought you were acting justly. And here you have killed the author of life. I mean, that's a bit of a twist at the end of the story, isn't it? <laughs> the one that you thought was, uh, God's enemy, you discover is the author of life, you know? Yeah. It's in, and then it's interesting. Like I interviewed this guy last week named Mark Mattis. He wrote a book called Luther's Martin Luther's Theology of Beauty, which is an outstanding book. And, and I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's one of those books where I'm thinking about it so much now. And this passage made me think about it because he said that basically the, the, the union for someone like Luther of the true, the good, and the beautiful is mercy. It's the mercy that you see in, in Christ offering himself for us. And he says that Luther's view of beauty is tied to freedom because it is tied to the gospel. The gospel sets the conscience free, but in doing so, it opens humans to receiving nature as creation, as gift, and as this gift is given through the senses. The ladder Mm. between humanity and God is not one that beauty tempts us to raise toward perfection. Instead, it's a downward staircase in which God overthrows the self-righteousness, ingratitude, and insensitivity by which sinners close themselves off from the wealth of good things God crafts into the creation. Mm. I, I just think that's so powerful. I, I was thinking of that as Peter's telling them this message that there is mercy and, and the world will look different. You know, the things will look different when you're the receptor of mercy. Yeah. Do you find yourself feeling like that's too good to be true? And there are some people who I know who, if you told them that's the kind of mercy God has for them, they'd be like, well, that's, that's wussy. That can't be true. Cause that's just, I mean, you're just talking about beauty and pretty things and, emotions that's just i mean that's not real theology that you're dealing with right there i have a i'm thinking there's a woman in one of my small groups who said to me that she went home for easter and um the preacher said i don't care what you think i don't care what you feel the word of god is the only thing that matters (laughs) (laughs) So, so i love uh I love the kinds of things that you're saying, but I also think there's so many spaces where it's shamed. Mercy is not strong enough. It's not rational enough. It's not measurable enough. Yeah, I I just don't. I think that we are fundamentally emotional creatures, and I think of course I I think that reason comes. What is and God is Jeff Goldblum say in the Big Chill? I forget his character, but he says, you know, human beings can get through a day without food or without sex but they can't get through a day without a good rationalization because reason lags behind Mm -hmm. the will and the emotions. It doesn't drive the train. Mm -hmm. Like it it, is always coming up with rationalizations. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, I think Peter's saying, okay, like, you know, 
we're not rationalizing here. You know, this is the power of God happening, and 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 God's offering you the kind of freedom that this man has, the the kind of freedom right. in his feet. It, God's offering you in your hearts through through faith and thanksgiving. Mm, wow. Yeah, what you've just seen happen to this man's legs is available to your hearts, which I guess is why so many of the uh, Jewish leaders had trouble with Jesus because they wanted something that was less weak and more more of an argument or a rationalization. Yeah, and why Christian leaders have a problem. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to say that, but yeah. Because I never was cool. What makes me think I could start being slated? The hardest to learn was the least complicated. Yeah. So on to First John. First John three, one through seven. Um, see what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. What a great passage! Mm-hmm. And you know mm-hmm. he goes on to talk about here. Um, that the reason the world doesn't know us is that, you know, they didn't know him. And there's this kind of um, connection between, you know, the children of God born, you know, in the womb of grace. And, and th- there's a difference between here he's laying out, I think, between uh, the way of the world and the way of love. Mm. Yeah, I love this first section, especially. And it reminds me of, I remember when a long time ago when I was taking Greek class and almost every translation class I took was something written by John. And I remember thinking I was lucking out because I know Paul, for example, is much more technical language. And John uses, it's kind of reminds me of reading Merton or Nowen that the words are actually very simple words, but they're very rich and painting pictures of something that's really emotionally satisfying. And um, this section here especially feels like one of those sections of John that it feels honestly almost more like I speak to my children as a mother. And it reminds me of Ursula Le Guin has this amazing commencement speech that she did in the 80s um, where she talks about the mother tongue and how there's this way of speaking that is not logical syllogisms and is not valued by the institution, but but it's the way that, that mothers speak to their children and, um, you know, the, the sounds of comfort. Um, which actually remind me of like the first time anybody ever prayed over me in tongues, which is not part of my tradition. And rationally, the whole time I was thinking, this is weird. We don't believe in this. But somehow it wasn't until afterwards that I realized my spirit entirely understood it as it was almost like the sounds that a mother dove makes drawing its babies under her wings. Mm. And that's the kind of sound that John sometimes makes to me that he is, it's, it's not argument. It's not reason. It's not. Um, something that necessarily makes sense. And maybe I'm thinking this because my son has been having a hard time lately. And there's a certain way that, that I've been speaking to him, which is, which it doesn't necessarily, it's not really rational necessarily. It's not really like explaining things to him, but just saying, you're going to be okay. You are loved. You are safe. I'm proud of you. You know, those are not, um, those are not performance kinds of ways of speaking in the way that we think we get stuff done the rest of the time. But John often reminds me of that. Um, and his children are having a hard time. I mean, here it's clear that like, yeah, exactly. That first John, I mean, there's a lot of ink spilled upon uh, about like who the opponents are. Um, but, mm. but it's clear that there's a big argument in the community as to whether or not John steered them the right way. And mm. there's an, another kind of gospel going on. Uh, it's interesting because, 
Hmm. Peter Lighthart has a great commentary on this book, and he says, you know, that everybody assumes that the the critics in First John are Gnostics, and he hmm. thinks they might actually be Judaizers, like in Galatians, like people that are actually hmm. heaping on, maybe mystically oriented, but some these kind of you know. Jewish ritual stuff to the but he says you know these are both flip sides of a similar coin and that they're both um, things that have a tough time with the incarnation being revealed but, mm. but you know both mm. of them have a veil both the Judaizers and Galatians and and what we know of Gnosticism one of a veil and the veil has been torn in vulnerable mm. love and it's it, it's very interesting because it seems like John's saying you know hey remember the vulnerable love you know Mm. that you've been born into yeah, you know, yeah. through the crucified Christ. Like this is really your first love. Mm. Yeah. Which is interesting. If he's kind of arguing with a, a different kind of teaching, he's not coming at it, at least not all the time in, in argumentative way. He's not necessarily trying to convince them of something. He's loving them into something in order to actually, you know, the medium is the message, I guess, in order to actually reveal to him the, the thing he's talking about, it's kind of crazy that you could have an argument with somebody to prove to them the love of the Father. And so he's actually approaching them in the way that he wants them to receive something from God, which is beautiful. Yeah. I was really struck. I want to, I want somebody to make a book just of all the crazy passages. You know, we, we have certain passages that are our favorites that we cross stitch on pillows or that we use to argue about stuff and then there's these all these other passages that if they stood alone as much as the famous ones do we'd be like what the bible doesn't say that this one that says no one who abides in him sins yeah i mean i don't know i feel like i could spend a long time figuring <laughs> that one out and like if maybe maybe if we spend all of our energy uh on how, how do we abide in him instead of how do we stop sinning it might be a better way to spend our energy. Yeah, because the abiding, I think, is a gift. I mean, when Paul said, you know, like, it's not me, but Christ who lives in me. I mean, I think mm. there's this, you know, that, I mean, N.T. Wright says this, that flesh isn't uh, skin or animated ma- matter. It's, 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 it's human being animated by the world versus animated by the spirit. Mm. And so I guess it's the mm. difference of, like, what wind is in your sails. Mm. Oh, that's nice. That'll preach. Speaking of preaching, let's go to the gospel yes. reading, which is what, what, oh, is that it, was is nice. it what most people, uh, you know, I, I suppose, I guess most people, you know, very often, you know, focus on the gospel reading, which sometimes can be the hardest thing to preach the gospel from, hmm. the gospels. That's interesting. I mean, I, well, because it's kind of still in process in the actual stories of the gospels, right? The gospel, if it includes Jesus' death and resurrection, isn't quite finished yet in the in the books that are called the gospel. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes it, it's often reduced to Jesus' mere teacher or exemplar or something, as opposed yes. to... Yes, Um It's really interesting, because I was reading something on the Calvin 
Center for Preaching Excellence. They do great little lectionary commentaries. And Scott Hosey, who's actually going to be a guest in a few weeks, he has this great commentary on this text. And he says, what this text is telling us, this text, the conclusion of Luke, where he appears to the disciples, and he opens the scriptures to them the same way he does um, with the couple on the road to Emmaus. And he says, Jesus, what we learn here is Jesus is the Rosetta Stone for scripture. And maybe all of hmm. reality. <laughs> that basically... That when the risen Jesus is, it's like when in in the Matrix when Neo sees the code. Like if if you want to see the code for the Bible and reality, that the code is the risen Jesus. Mm-hmm. I like that. The passage that I preached on the week before Easter was um, leading up to Jesus resurrect. Uh, Jesus, um, what's it called? <laughs> Arrest in Mark. And so the passage where the woman is. Um, anointing him where he's having the last supper and he's telling them they're all going to betray him. And then he gets arrested and there's the garden of Gethsemane in there as well. There's just all these places where people don't understand him. People betray him. People deny him. People arrest him. He goes before the high priest and, um, there's real temptation, you know, there's real, um, danger. And yet he just keeps pressing, pressing forward. He keeps stepping further towards this thing, even though he's wrestling with it in Gethsemane. And you just mentioned about reality. I just kept thinking, like, what is it that drives him forward, even though it's going to cost him his friends, it's going to cost him people's um, understanding of him, it's going to cost him um, his own will. You know, he's wrestling with his own will there in Gethsemane. It's costing him his physical safety, even though he knows what what's coming when he's standing before the priest and and he says, are you this person or not? And he says, yes, I am. You know, like, what is it that keeps driving him towards it? And it has to be that he just has a, a vision of reality that is just, he just knows something that's worth it that just keeps driving him forward. And I want, I don't entirely see that, but I want to see that. <laughs> you know, I want to know what it is that makes him is better than all the other things that cost him, including his life, you know. Obviously, he knew somehow something was, the story wasn't finished there, but yeah. It's interesting. I, I was reading something a year or two ago about Luther on reading the Gospels, and he said, you know, that if we don't see the pro nobis, the, the for us, and I, I think there is a sense in which, you know, like Jesus seems like the opposite of a misanthrope, right? He's, he's, he's a pro-anthrope. <laughs> I mean, mm, like there, there's mm. this sense in which like, you know, everybody matters to him, mm. you know? And I mean, his, his capacity, I think to see, it seems like from the limited picture of his life we get from the memoirs of the apostles is, is that this is someone for whom, uh, you know, everybody matters. Mm. Yeah. I love it. I mean, he, he seems to like human beings more than they like themselves and being willing to become one seems to somehow remind us of that. It's, inter- yeah. it's interesting, too, that I, I, I find it so funny that he's like, do you guys have some fish? Like, do you have some broiled <laughs> fish? He appears to... I know, he's just so human here, isn't he? He's hungry. But it's, it's also interesting, too, like you have the sense in which the, the human tragedy begins in a garden, right? And Jesus, you know, sweats, you know, tears that, you know, sweats blood in the garden, you know, and, mm. and meets, uh, you know, you know, in one account meets some of the first witnesses in the gar- in a garden and, and the human story goes awry with eating, mm-hmm. you know, that, um, Al- yeah. Alexander Shmema, the great uh, Russian Orthodox theologian says that, you know, 
in, in deciding to eat, like basically Adam and Eve and eating from the tree of knowledge create religion and that, and that mm. they bracket off apart. God is over there. Our life is over here. And so it's interesting that, that in Luke, you have these reconnecting stories, like, like the road to Emmaus looks like, you know, a lot like um, Adam and Eve, right? It's probably a male and a female eating. And then this looks a little more like Israel, right? You've got the 12 collected and there's eating. The, the, the healing always mm. comes through eating. Mm-hmm. And the, the wedding feast at the end. Yep. History, as tia, uh, history will not end with a bang or a whimper, right? But with the wedding supper of the Lamb. Mm, mm, praise God. Mandy, thanks for doing this. Well, We're, it's good to be here. And we'll have you back soon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Mandy for coming on the podcast and check out the information about She Leads over at missioalliance.org. And thanks to you again for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.